Welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Spiritual Wanderlust podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch, and today we have joining us Dr. Jerome Lubb. And those of you who have been following the Spiritual Wanderlust podcast for a while know that I love talking about intersections. They just reveal the wholeness of things, like the interconnectedness points to this underlying wholeness. And one of my favorite intersections is spirituality, neuroscience, and psychology. And that's a big part of what we do here is offering tools from the contemplative tradition paired with those from latest research in science and neurobiology and how our brains and bodies were designed. And together they give this, this delightfully clear path forward on the path to wholeness, to healing, and even divine union. So today you're in for a special treat because Dr. Jerome shares our love for intersections and he is a functional neurobiologist, or excuse me, neurologist, who has written a really great book called The Brain-Based Enneagram. And he frequently weaves together these streams of spirituality, psychology, and his decades of research and experience in neurology and working with the brain and body. So Dr. Jerome, we are thrilled to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you again. It's, it's always a gift. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So to begin today, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how did you get interested in these streams kind of weaving together, like the Enneagram, neuroscience? How did all this come together for you? Um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, it's an interesting thing of how it happened, Kelly. Most of it has been pretty unsolicited. It's just kind of being a passenger to some of the crazy things that have happened in life and trying to make sense of it. I think in all of those those streams, whether it be psychology, it be neurology, it be spirituality, it be clinical care, it be self-development, all Enneagram, all of these things were uh, bumping up against spaces that I didn't solicit, but then also when I was there, didn't understand or uh, ended up hitting some walls in terms of the, the answers that were being provided in those spaces. So, uh, for instance, I'm, I'm an immigrant kid from Congo, born in South Africa to Zimbabwean parents. So I moved to the States as a refugee kid in the early 90s to Tennessee. Uh, unsolicited right? uh, passenger and uh, ended up getting run over by a car a year after we were in the States. I, uh, I had a, an unfortunate situation where I, I drove a, a bike out into the middle of the road, got run over um, and had some really uh, significant complications throughout life from a couple of concussions in high school to being hit by two different drunk drivers uh, at 17 and 20. And what ended up happening is that I became a patient with complex brain injury and neurological issues. Went to 21 specialists over nine years. Uh, in the beginning of my marriage, found $100,000 only to get a diagnosis that no one knew what to do with. So as a patient, uh, I kept coming up against, well, we're not sure what to do with that. 
And as an immigrant kid going to 11 different schools before I graduated high school, constantly being in environments that were changing and uh, dealing with a significant amount of, of bullying, having an identical twin brother who was 85 pounds lighter than me when I graduated high school. So understanding the concept of body dysmorphia and body image, mental health, when you have a reminder of what you could look like if you were 85 pounds lighter. Uh, so my world around kind of navigating what am I doing with my experience as a patient, as a person in terms of psychology, led me into these spaces where, you know, the only reason I became a doctor was because I couldn't find a good one. Uh, my undergrad is in digital animation and film. I used to do music full time with my brothers that don't fit the mold of a traditional provider um, because I started out as a patient, right? That's why my, my website, uh, I'm known as the patient doctor or a personal trainer for the brain is because all of the, the answers that I've been seeking out started out as a quest for my own understanding, right? My own experience as a patient. In the midst of all of this, uh, you know, unsolicited, I was raised in a charismatic Pentecostal world uh, where it wasn't really a good service until somebody started doing laps, uh, moved in all the gifts of the spirit. And I started asking questions like, does it count if you get pushed? I, I don't know if that's the same thing when it's a Pentecostal experience of being slain in the spirit and uh, asking all these questions as a teenager and not getting the answers, especially when you uh, are sold a, a very performative version of Christianity. And then you bury your dad at 14 as a freshman in high school and the prayers didn't fix it. And then you're working through 80 to 100 migraines per calendar year and over 200 headaches per calendar year and the prayers don't fix it. You know, I, I've been anointed in enough oil to bathe a cow. It didn't get rid of my migraines or keep my dad from dying. Yeah. And for me, it wasn't a case of walking away from the idea of health being an option or walking away from spirituality as an option or walking away from the Enneagram as a good resource when I found out about it, but it felt insufficient. Hmm. Uh, it was moving into these places of going, you know, I'm a patient who became a doctor. I'm a patient who specifically has complex neurological issues. So I created a clinic that specializes in complex neurological issues. I see the lens through functional neurology, and I'm still somebody who is wholly committed to this idea of spiritual health at the same time as physical, mental, and emotional health. And then I discovered this thing called the Enneagram, which feels like it has really great intersections for relationships amongst all of those areas, but it feels a bit too reductive, especially knowing how the brain works now as a patient and a provider so what ended up happening is when you look at the clinical side of things, the spiritual side of things, the psychological side of things, and then the enigmatic side of things, as a person, I just kept going, I think all of these things are the same language, but different dialects. Mm -hmm. Could I create a, a modality or a methodology or a process that helps to intersect these things? And I ended up creating the brain-based model of the Enneagram and a whole identity methodology, which helps you to see how all of the types and all the aspects of the Enneagram are actually just correlations with brain real estate and brain function. And it's been a journey of just trying to answer those questions for myself in those areas as a patient, a partner, a parent, a provider, um, all of those different things. And, and just trying to get a little bit closer to um, a healthier version of myself in the process. Mm, yeah, thank you. It's remarkable to me how many of us, especially in helping professions, are um, often spurred by our own questioning. I mean, I'm sure it's true for other professions as well, but I find, you know, whether it's in ministry or therapy or, you know, teaching, all sorts of, you know, spiritual and kind of social emotional work, oftentimes it's because we're 
we're first and asking questions for ourselves. And yes. um, I remember growing up that used to when a some of parent of a friend, you know, was like, oh, all those therapists are just messed up looking to heal themselves, you know, and it she saw it as a bad thing. But more the more that I've been doing inner work and such, I'm like, I, I don't really trust a provider who hasn't done their own inner work if they haven't struggled with similar things and um, had to use the tools for themselves in a very real and needed way. Yeah. Um, so I think it makes it all the more potent um, because they know exactly what you're going through and how to apply things. Yeah, 100%. You know, I definitely fit the mold of the wounded healer um, of swords and physician heal thyself or clinician heal thyself. But you know, I also think you don't want to trust a cook that doesn't understand what it's like to be hungry, right? You want to you want to be able to go. This person understands what I need because they also understand hunger, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's so. It's so incredible and it never gets old and it never stops being profound how many times uh, and how powerful it is for a patient to say you're the first provider that listened. And I'm going, it's not actually a very difficult thing to listen to a patient, but it is so uncommon, right? And I think that's true of, of many healing spaces or supportive spaces in, in, in any therapeutic modality, right? It's finding somebody who's not only capable but willing to listen that's not so common unfortunately yeah yeah it's very true i think a lot of us just haven't had it modeled for us and so we don't yeah don't know how exactly to right begin. yeah i want to spend some time talking about um how neurology and all your experience kind of clinically overlaps with the Enneagram, because I think that's something that's very novel for people. Um, many of our listeners I know have heard of the Enneagram, maybe have done their own work, maybe, you know, know their number or their type. Um, but I'm curious how those intersect for you and what, what relevance that has to us in our daily lives. That's a great question. I'm actually, yeah, I think it's going to take me about 50 years to properly unpack it through a curriculum that I'm working on. Um, but I, I tell people, you know, I'll give you the, the layman's terms for some of the things that I'm working through with the curriculum and then start at the beginning. But uh, I, there's a five-tier process that I'm working on that will take somebody from understanding themselves to then taking care of themselves to then taking care of others, uh, then training others to take care of others because they have taken care of themselves and understand themselves. And then lastly, what it looks like to treat others with that knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So I think you can walk through being a novice that has no experience with the Enneagram or functional neurology or the, the uh, methodology in the process that I use called functional psychosomatics, which is the intersection between the brain and the body and how that's a two-way street and we can functionally use that. Um, but realistically, I, I think, you know, the application of this from a clinical standpoint is actually really straightforward if we understand how the Enneagram correlates with brain function and how that brain structure and function is like playing an instrument. You know, I don't know how to play the violin, but I could learn, right, because somebody else knows how the violin works and the violin is a part of a section of the orchestra and then there's the whole orchestra right so the brain and the enneagram and spirituality are just different synonyms for the orchestra of being human and playing in concert with each other so uh one of the ways you can look at that is that the enneagram has these uh, these things called intelligence centers uh which are known as head heart and gut and synonymously the head is the same thing as our mental health or our mind it's how we think right 
our heart sensor is the same thing as saying our emotional health or how we process big feelings and emotions, right? Uh, it's not the feeling in the body, it's the feeling in the heart space or the emotional real estate. Uh, it's the emotional intelligence, right? Uh, and then you've got the gut sensor, which is correlated with our physical health or our body. So whenever anybody goes, like, I don't understand the Enneagram, I don't understand neuroscience, I don't understand psychology. I say, do you understand that you have physical health based on your body? Then you have mental health based on what's happening with your thought life and what you're thinking. And then you have emotional health or emotional intelligence in terms of if you understand your feelings and your emotions. Let's start there. And those three things, thought, feeling, and action, or mental, emotional, and physical health, are something that are very common to everybody on the planet. When you know that clinically, and I have somebody come in who's dealing with anxiety, it's a very different experience than somebody dealing with ADHD, or depression, or self-harm, or panic attacks, or fill in the blank, right? Uh, all of those things are, there's either a body-based primary diagnosis or symptom or issue, there's a mental health conversation, or there's an emotional health conversation. And even now, novel ways of doing that is we've tended to lump mental and emotional health into the mental health category. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're actually not the same thing. They coincide mm -hmm. and they're correlated. Uh, but knowing that that is like treating the left arm when it's a right arm issue, uh, it's a part of the body, but it's in a different part of the brain. And knowing that difference can be profoundly supportive. Yes, yes. And that's, I've, the more I've just immersed myself into, you know, neuroscience, especially like polyvagal theory and trauma research and all of those things, and just recognizing how much more effective for especially trauma, the body-based, the somatic approaches are far more effective than the cognitive, like, let's just address your thinking, you know, let it go. And it's, it's so different, but it's remarkable at how, I mean, now I feel like it's catching on and trauma, you know, people are speaking about it everywhere, but I know a lot of my therapist friends, you know, even those who were trained in the last decade were like, we didn't really get much of any of this in grad school. Like it just, no, the no, it's so great. different. And thank you in advance for your patience. If you hear some background, I'm not wearing a closed mic and I'm in my clinic and there's a, a midwife today that's taking care of some families. And with three kids that are six and under, it's always uh, a good time and a joy next door. So if you hear the background, that's them celebrating babies on the way. Um, but, you know, to that point, this is where a lot of the work that I intersect in is very heavily tied into neuropsychology. Like, what does it look like to do family systems or internal family systems or AEDP, which is Advanced Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy, those concepts. And transparently, I'm not a licensed counselor, but I have licensed counselors that work with me and we co-manage. And me being fluent in family systems, IFS, AEDP, polyvagal therapy, I can clinically apply polyvagal therapy as a functional neurologist, but I'm not going to be the person who's sitting down as their clinical therapist from an LPC, LCSW, LNFT standpoint. Um, but why it's really cool to be able to look at that is, for instance, telling somebody the basic stat of 95 to 97% of what happens to us on a daily basis is subconscious. It's unconscious. It's autopilot, right? And three to 5% reaches conscious level. It's not that we use three to 5% of our brain. It's that we're only aware of three to 5% of what happens during the day consciously. And that makes sense if you look at it from the basics of a family unit or an organization. Your executive team and your CEO is only present to so much of what's happening in the organization. 
I am a parent with three kids and I am only present to what my three children are doing a certain number of hours or even sometimes minutes during the day. But as a family unit and as an organization, we're still operational. It just doesn't mean that I am always conscious of what's happening in real time. The body's the same way. It's really normal for it to be on autopilot. That actually helps us to feel safer, right? Mm -hmm. So when I know somebody's coming in with a body-based issue and they've done tons of great DBT or CBT, cognitive behavioral or dialectical behavioral therapies, and they've done a ton of talk therapy, but nobody's gone, hey, did you know that your anxiety has actually been, has actually been uh, strengthened and exercised and has become so efficient in your system because for 40 years you've been dealing with a sensory processing disorder, right? Every person that I've ever worked with that deals with high-grade anxiety has also got a skewed relationship with touch. Most of them, almost 95% or more, are hypersensitive to touch. People with anxiety are ticklish because they're anticipating something's going to happen. That's what anxiety is. So they anticipate touch. But helping them to understand you can't tickle yourself. So is it an issue with the input or is it a conversation around the experience and how can we adjust that a bit? So using sensory processing, like somatic experiencing to navigate supporting somebody's body to digest and metabolize what's happening to them physically. And then all of a sudden they're like, holy cow. So you tell me the 10 last 10 years of therapy hasn't been for a lack of effort or a lack of willpower, a lack of faith. It's maybe that the people in the boardroom are not the issue. It's that there's an opportunity to help the employees way downstream, stop setting fire to all of the trash cans and realize, take a deep breath. We can help you process this through your body and it'll actually decrease your level of anxiety better than anything else you've ever done in your life because you're ticklish. Let's start there, right? So it's kind of concepts like that and applying that across the board to every type on the Enneagram, every intelligence center, every instinct, every subtype. You can literally take any piece of information that is Enneagram specific or Enneagrammatic and translate that or, or get, offer a synonym to actual brain function and then translate that to actual therapeutic intervention because they're all saying the same thing just with different words. Could you, out of curiosity, go through the nine types in like 60 seconds or less and name either what they correlate to in the brain or even, I've also heard you talk about how, um, you know, on the extremes, each of these you know, Enneagram types could also be a diagnosis, you know? Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm curious if you want to go through and... Yeah, and I'll tell you from a resource standpoint, the nine levels of health that are explained in the Enneagram Institute actually do a pretty good job. Of, if you look at the, especially the le- level one and level two, uh, they, they show a pretty strong pathology connection, uh, if anybody wants to read more on that. Um, but really high level in 60 seconds, you can actually correlate uh, the gut center to body-based symptomatology, the head center to mental health, like I mentioned, and the heart center to emotional health. And one of the things that I I communicate to people is you can see it as a gas break and cruise or throttle. The brain in all situations is dealing with a sympathetic response and a parasympathetic response, which is your autonomic nervous system. But that's three things. It's a gas pedal in your sympathetics. It's a brake pedal in your parasympathetics. And then it's a throttle between those two. So it's how your subconscious brainstem function works. It's on autonomic or automatic, same thing. So in the gut center, eight is a gas pedal, nine is a brake pedal, one is a throttle. In the heart center, two is a throttle, three is a gas pedal, four is a brake pedal. Mm. And in the head, 
five is a brake pedal, six is a throttle, and seven is a gas pedal. And if you know just that information, you can understand your relationship with whether or not you're withdrawing and your body's trying to shut things down, or whether or not you're engaging and your body's trying to amplify and pursue, or if it's trying to find some degree of equilibrium and support you by throttling that and trying to find some degree of equity or balance. Mm. And you can do that. And one of the ways you can say that is correlate gas brake and cruise, that gas is a plus, Cruise is an equal sign, and then break is a minus sign. So if you ask your relationship of how a body sensor number like eight can be so different than a body sensor number like nine, it's because eight is a gas pedal and nine is a brake pedal. Eight is pursuing something that's life-giving and nine is withdrawing in order to mitigate pain. It's more fluent in what a negative reinforcement looks like and eight is more fluent in what a positive reinforcement looks like. That's why they dominate their environment differently. They're going to win the fight first. That's not what a nine does. A nine withdraws because it's trying to mitigate pain by avoiding conflict. Very different strategies. But you can understand all of it clinically just from a gas rate cruise kind of concept. Yeah. Yeah. So using that um, uh, kind of intelligence center, how does then a one compare? Like what, is, what does cruise or throttle look like in that analogy? Yeah, so in that way, if you look at it, I, I, I also correlate these with what are called stances, Hornedian stances, there's time stances, Hornedian stances, harmonics, there's tons of triadic things in the Enneagram world, um, like tri-types and other things. Uh, but when you see the one in a body sensor as a throttle or a cruise control or an equals, what they're doing is trying to constantly find a balance in what they do, right? I don't call it a duty or an obligation stance. I call it a support stance because realistically, if they're on autopilot and they're unhealthy, one, two, and six, which are known as duty and obligation, they end up being boxed into this service oriented kind of workmanship, right? It's the, you got to come up with the plan in the six, you got to take care of the person in the two, and you got to respect and honor the process in the one. But when, what it really is, is at the heart, at the core of that motivation, they want to support, they want to be a support stance, they are a pivot. They're not trying to slam the gas pedal, they're not trying to slam the brake pedal, they're trying to be a fulcrum, a linchpin, a support sensor, the, the piece in the middle of the seesaw, so to speak. So when you see it with a one, their desire to find balance is that they have to take into consideration the way that everything is done. They can't just check out and not do it. They can't do it all themselves and not make sure that there's some degree of budget and audit. Um, but, you know, sometimes the, the heartbeat of what a one gets to, to navigate is that it can be really helpful to do an audit, not an autopsy, mm. right? There's a difference uh, that when they reflect on something and they utter the, uh, it's kind of like, this is a statement for one that's kind of like naming he who must not be named. It's like saying Voldemort out loud, right? Um, for one, it's the statement of that's good enough, right? Mm. Saying that's good enough is vulgar, right? It's, it's, it's unacceptable. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's the idea of moving away from practice doesn't make perfect and moving towards practice makes permanent. So what am I practicing? You know, this is a gift of one. They do reformation. Reformation is synonymous with iteration and revision and course correction. But for one, the throttle is saying, what is the appropriate amount of effort to actionably do? What am I doing here? And am I doing too much, too little, or just right? And if they can figure out what just right is, it's going to change day by day, and that's okay. Um, but getting stuck in that space, that's the thing. If you withdraw, 
you can hide. If you hit the gas, you can run forward or run over something. So it's a lot easier for sometimes for somebody to run away or to run forward, run away or run towards. But when you're in a duty or a support stance or an obligation stance, you're kind of stuck between all of those spaces. So it's a throttle that helps you to either speed up or slow down. But sometimes you can accidentally drop into neutral and then feel very, very stuck. Uh, and that's, that's kind of work for one energy in terms of what they do, for two in terms of who they serve, and then for six in terms of how they plan and strategize moving forward because they're a forecasting number. Mm. Yeah, so very different energy. Yeah. So would you go through the other two centers as well? Because I know, I mean, I'm sure everybody has to like go back and rewind this and be like, wait, yeah. what did he say? Like, what were all the numbers? Yeah. So how does, how does the heart center work as you know, as the kind of plus minus equal as the gas yeah, break and throttle. Absolutely. It's, it's one of those things that when you see the four as a withdrawal stance, but that's a brake pedal, then what they can do is they're very good at withholding, right? Withholding meaning that what does it look like for them to withhold and also to check in with themselves. So there's a lot of synonyms here. When you look at a four, they're much better at being able to withdraw, but withdraw into themselves. Mm -hmm. So think of the difference of primarily as somebody who withdraws into a cave and they're there by themselves. It's an internal isolated space versus somebody who's out in the world adventuring and trying to conquer everything that they can. Three is a conquering stance. It's the, it's the succeeding, achieving, charming, confident number, right? It's a very gregarious number. And in the, in the stance world, it's called assertive. So a four is gonna withdraw in whatever way is relative to them. And then a three is going to assert themselves, right? So they're gonna put their foot down but they're generally going to put their foot down on the gas pedal a four is going to put their foot down but they're generally going to put it on the brake pedal and then the two is trying to find a balance between that so if you think energetically when you get around people threes are trying to take over the world right it's like pinky in the brain you know i'm going to take over the world uh two is just trying to take care of everybody they they're they're on both sides of the equation so when they're that throttle and they're that equal symbol they're taking into consideration everybody matters Sometimes for a three, only the goal matters. And sometimes for a four, the only thing that they can connect to is about what matters to them and how that's relevant for their own experience. Uh, so it gives you a little bit of a connotation that the gas break and cruise also applies to the break is internal and self, right? The equals or throttle is focusing on others, but within reach. Hmm. And then when you're looking at a gas pedal, it's focusing on everything else that's just out of reach. That's why you see seven, eight, and three are all pursuit-based. They, they don't have it yet, but they want it right now, right? So they're trying to ascertain it. They're moving towards it, sometimes aggressively, but always assertively. Uh, so the two is that heart-based space that's taking care of everyone. The three is taking care of the goal. And then the four is taking care of themselves and sometimes over-focused on themselves. So it's a relative relationship. None of these things indicate health. They just indicate survival strategy and pace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one thing that I love. And I kind of squeed to myself when I heard you talk about, you know, the, the overlap between the Enneagram and IFS, because that's something that I love as well, simply really? to, I mean, so for those of you who are unfamiliar with IFS, we have another episode on that, but it essentially is talking about how there's a core, a self with a capital S, and then you have all of these parts that you develop over life, these parts of your personality, they, you can call them sub-personalities, ego states, you know, just aspects of you, whether it's, you know, your perfectionism or your people pleasing, and you have all of these parts who, you know, help you adapt um, and survive in the world. But when you look at the Enneagram, as nine parts like nine universal types that we all have kind of like archetypes if you want to get jungian about it 
um, I feel like that's so, um, I don't know, it just changes how you look at the Enneagram instead of saying like, well, I'm a three or I'm a seven or I'm a six. Yeah. Um, and you recognize like, no, we all have all nine parts and we just use them in different circumstances and let, you know, usually a few take the lead more than others. Absolutely. And that was one of the biggest things that actually led me to create kind of the model and why, why I ended up in that space was I got introduced to the Enneagram and this idea of typecasting and just being a single type and going, but you know, one, from a brain perspective, you can't, you can't distill a person into a single number neurologically. We're way too complex for that. There's too, there's too much going on. And then spiritually, it was, I come from a Judeo-Christian background and now more in, in, in Christian mysticism, alternative orthodoxy spaces. But the first question that came out to me the very first day that I got exposed to the Enneagram was, well, if I'm made in the image of God, what number is God? And then it's like, okay, well, God is clearly all nine numbers, and I'm not made in the image of an aspect of God. So that must mean that to some degree, I have all nine numbers in me, but how do I know that? How do I figure that out? And I started asking questions like, well, what's my lowest number, and why does that matter? And everybody goes, that's not a question that we ask. And I go, well, if I understand trauma-informed and trauma-trained work, shadow work, to cast a shadow, that's still above ground. So your highest number has a shadow, but I'm talking about the stuff that's buried so deep that it hasn't seen the light of day for decades. That mm. kind of shadow work, mm. that's different. That's not the same thing as what's above ground getting light shown on it, that's different. Yeah. Um, so for instance, you know, when we can connect the dots with that with the head center, most people think I'm very, very high in five because five is the researcher, the investigator, the observer. It is the neuroscientist and the engineer, right? Five is my lowest number by a lot. It is my, out of all the types, everything that I look at, it is my lowest number. And if you look at it in terms of the way that five engages in the world, it can't go to sleep unless it has more information and more data. My entire lived experience was birthed, lived, and moved through ambiguity, mm -hmm. right? We moved to the country with $100, two suitcases, a bipolar grandmother, and a parrot. I went to 11 different schools before I graduated high school. My dad died at 14, yeah. you know? I was born in South Africa, immigrated on asylum status as a refugee kid from Congo. I'm a white guy named Jerome, and I have an identical twin brother. My dad spoke 13 languages. I spoke three when I came to the country. Like, concrete clarity and understanding was not what I grew up with. Mm -hmm. Everything that I grew up with was complete, completely devoid. Now, here's the thing. People who are very high in five can have the exact same experience as me and then produce five as a survival strategy. Sure. The difference is that that became, for somebody who had a similar experience, they grew up with massive insecurity, instability, or in ambiguity specifically, and they, the, the more they understood, the safer they felt. The only way that that becomes high is if you become fluent in that and it becomes a successful survival strategy. Mm. And you pursue it because it helps you to either mitigate pain really quickly and it minimizes negative reinforcers. If I have a, if I have that answer that you want, even if I don't do what you ask, that's the difference between five and one. Five gives the right answer. One gives the right action. It's very different, mm. right? So I grew up in spaces where my viable survival strategy wasn't having better answers. I didn't get a lot of clarity in that way. Somebody else grows up in that environment and their answer actually helps to mitigate their pain or help them feel better. Now it becomes something that they reinforce because it, it helps them to stay alive and it's very gratifying. For me, because it wasn't a success, it wasn't a successful strategy and it also wasn't modeled for me, I didn't become fluent in five. So how does that show up? 
for me, it shows up that if I do a lot of work around research and a lot of work around data collection, it's exhausting. It's not where my stamina is. I have to be very careful as somebody who's efficient in two and efficient in a heart sensor. My two is my pilot and the, the airline is, is, is heart-based, right? It's like Southwest. It's all about love. And for me, knowing that when I have to go and do my taxes, it is brutally uncomfortable for me to sit in front of a spreadsheet or to have a conversation around finances or to do a budget. Right. I've been in private practice for six years. I had to hire people to help me do my PL and my budget because I don't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Knowing that and knowing that five is not a fluency for me allows me to get outside support and supplementation in really, really powerful ways. But if I don't know that about myself, then I keep wondering why am I so interested in neuroscience and neuropsychology and all of these things, but five doesn't sing to me. It's because the data is a means to an end. Every single thing that I'm gathering is so that I can then translate that to the effective care and outcome of a person. Mm. It's person focused, it's person consequence. Somebody who's high in five, they don't need to share that with anybody else. They just need it for themselves. It's their own understanding. And I gave up on my own understanding and getting the right answers a long time ago, but that's nothing ever showed up for that. So now I have to redeem that space too, right? Mm. so being said, five is your brake pedal because it often goes into a, an interior headspace of trying to think through things and understand. Six is that throttle of trying to say, how do I effectively support everybody with good strategy and good planning? I can think ahead. Five is reflecting on the past. Six is thinking about the future and going, man, if I have the right strategy and the right plan, everybody stays safe. That's a really great thing for a strategic planner, right? Mm-hmm. Or somebody who's good at forecasting. I want my financial advisor to be high in six and five. I can tell you that much. Um, and then seven is a gas pedal because seven is the kinetic energy. Clinically, you see it correlated with ADHD at every age um, because it's just like, oh my God, look at how much the world entices me and excites me. Uh, ADHD is not a negative thing until it runs rush out over the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. But seven is the gas pedal. Six is the throttle and five is the brake pedal in terms of our strategy for thinking. Case in point, I'll give you a practical one and then I'll take a deep breath. Say the exact same sentence, but with different tone and see how it changes, right? So saying I have an idea, right? Five energy goes, I have an idea. I know how to make this work. And that's the engineer. I have an idea. Let's research that. Six is I have an idea on how we can effectively move through this. I know what we can do. And the energy starts to pick up a little bit. And then seven energy goes, I got an idea. You ready? Right? I got an idea. Yeah. And depending on the way that you're wired, somebody going, I know what you're thinking. I can see that. Or I know how to move forward in that. I've got a plan versus who cares about a plan. It's like the difference between five reading the contract, six signing the contract and seven not caring about the contract. It's very different energy, okay? Yeah. So, yeah. So a couple of examples of where gas brake and cruise. And if anybody picked up on that, because I gave a lot, the, the brake pedal is associated with past tense. The gas pedal is actually associated with present tense. And there's a lot of things that uh, I think in the Enneagram world we'll have some, some uh, good quality debates and dialogue around. Um, but then anything that is a throttle is future tense. It has to take into consideration how every decision they make will affect every other decision. There's mm. a forecasting stance. Mm-hmm. Um, so six, two, and one are forecasters, nine, five, and four are reflecting on the past. And then seven, eight, and three want everything now. 
Uh, a lot of people think they're a future tense because they're moving forward. They actually are the cart before the horse. They're already there. They already, if you talk to three, eight, and seven, they're already in it. They're moving forward because they want to procure it in the moment. They need yes. it right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the seven, eight, and three is actually a future tense. Some people say that it's, I'm sorry, seven, eight, and three are present tense. Some people feel that they're future. Uh, but I think it's just they move so fast into the future that they make the future their presence in real time. And that's a little bit different. Interesting. Yeah. Would you say then when you are looking at people's, because I've heard you ask people's top Enneagram numbers. You don't ask like, what type are you? But you know, like, what are yeah. your top three numbers? Exactly. To do so, do you recommend people look more at like their childhood and their trajectory and like here's what i naturally do because i know that's been a question amongst you know people like oh you know as a child i was a little more this but yeah. now i'm a little more that <laughs> it's a great question because i actually i actually I, I think it's a combination it's never one answer right it's never one approach uh, but one thing i will tell you that i adamantly agree with is answering a question from a previous age understanding why that became an effective strategy and what your confirmation bias is. There's a difference between something informing you and something defining you, right? Your history informs you. It doesn't define you. It's different. Mm-hmm. Um, so why I say that is an analogy that I'll use and then I'll connect the dot for you. Um, is when you're looking at a whole identity or you're looking at all the Enneagram types, it's like saying that there are pilots, co-pilots, flight attendants, and passengers, and everybody's got baggage, but everybody's on the same flight, okay? <laughs> when somebody's talking about the Enneagram as a type, they're generally talking about their pilot or their driver. That's fine, but that's the driver at the moment. You also have to understand from a brain perspective, drivers can change based on context. Mm-hmm. As an extrovert, I can be introverted and oftentimes need to be for my health. An introvert can be extroverted and oftentimes needs to be for their own stamina and health, right? So it's not a fixed thing. You're not an extrovert or an introvert. You are somebody who's predisposed to be more efficient and have a confirmation bias for that, right? So that being said, when somebody answers a question, I'll tell you how I do it clinically, that that there are a couple of different parts to it. Um, There's four different factors. um, And you can apply the same thing to doing Enneagram work because I believe all the traditions offer something really relevant like diamond and SAT and narrative tradition are all really good but realistically when you're doing something if you're going to move somebody towards a healthier version of themselves it's part case history which is somebody's story it's their narrative it's what they brought into the room then it's their diagnostics in real time, how are you showing up at the moment, right? Imagine if I gave somebody a clinical diagnosis on their lab values, but I did it from lab values 10 years ago. It's a terrible idea, okay? Mm-hmm. Also, what if I gave somebody a diagnosis off of one lab value when there's 50 results on that sheet, right? That's a bad idea too. Yeah. The Enneagram tests like the Ready or HETI off of the Enneagram Institute or IBQ, I think those two from the Enneagram Institute are the most statistically reliable, especially when you look at the whole thing, not just a single type, because what happens if you tie in three numbers? Well, what if we stop thinking, well, I've got to be one of those three to going, all three of those people are in the cockpit. They are my pilots. Mm-hmm. All three of them are influencing where I go and how I get there. All of them at the same time. The person who's got their hands on the, on the lever that's actually flying the plane, well, that's going to depend on the context of whatever I'm motivated by or whatever I'm moving towards or away from or avoiding, right? Mm. So when I'm looking at case history, that's the narrative. That's the story that got me here, right? The diagnostic is an Enneagram test like the Ready or the IBQ. And then what you need is a really good quality exam, right? 
the exam is going to be somebody whose content expertise is whatever it is that you're working through. That can be an Enneagram coach or a spiritual director who understands the Enneagram, someone who's fluent in the Enneagram from an exam standpoint. Look, you understand your own story better than anybody else. That's what the narrative tradition teaches that I love. But let's also take that subjective side of things and add it with objective information like the ready or the IBQ. And then let's do clinical interpretation. What is the interpretation of both of those sets of information, both subjective and objective? Then you take that exam and you take all of that really good quality interpretation, and then you put it into interventions. There's actually five parts. Intervention means, hey, let's test our hypothesis. It's not a theory yet. For anybody who's listening, a theory is something that's proven. A hypothesis is something that's not, right? There's two different things. That's why it's called quantum theory and a theory of relativity because they've been proven. Um, so when I'm looking at it and going, well, I've got this really great narrative in, in case history. We got this information from the diagnostic, which isn't a diagnosis. It's just informing us. Mm-hmm. And then I did this really great exam, did some clinical interpretation of how you show up in all of these areas. What are we going to do in terms of moving forward that we can try to see if we implement it? It makes a difference, right? It minimizes your pain. It improves the life-giving encounters that you're pursuing. It creates a healthier environment for you in all of those areas. And then the last piece that's really important, because I went from case history to diagnostics to exam and clinical intervention to, uh, or exam and clinical interpretation to intervention, the last piece is it's not a case of if, but when you're going to have to course correct. You're, it's like going to a personal trainer. You can do the best planning on the planet, but when you go to lift that one particular piece of equipment and your knee buckles, you might need to adjust, right? So how do you course correct around that? How do you iterate around that? All of those things together give you the highest probability of getting an effective outcome. But to that point, one of the things that I recommend specifically, because you're going to need somebody, you're going to need to understand your own story to share your story. So that's one piece, right? That's where IFS work is great. You're going to need to take the test. So when you're taking the test, and even if you don't take the test, you can literally take the, if somebody doesn't come in with diagnostics, I can still do a really great exam. It's an added benefit, not a requirement, right? But if you take the test, one of the things that I recommend is when you take the test, take it in real time, because it's what's happening in your brain that your brain is processing in that moment, because the brain actually only processes in present tense. It cannot process in any other time stance. It's all present. So even if I remember what happened when we found my dad after he passed away, I know I'm 38, but my brain processes it as 14 until it actually connects with the relevance that that's a memory, not another experience, right? I'm remembering it, not re-experiencing it. So that being said, when you take the test, there's going to be three options that happen when you take the test. Either there's going to be two answers where one of them is so blatantly wrong. You're like, nope, that's not even close. Cool. Obvious answer. Or one of them is going to be so blatantly accurate, you're like, yep, that's definitely me. The other one's not even close. So it's either absolutely wrong, so the other one's an obvious answer, appropriate answer, or it's absolutely right, and you're like, I'm just going to go ahead and pick that. Those are the easy ones, right? The hard ones are where both of them feel equally wrong or equally right. Mm. The accuracy is in question. And in those situations, what I recommend that you do, again, because we're talking about who you are now, and I'll, I'll connect the dot as to why that matters in a second, When you get to two that feel equally right or equally wrong, think of the options as signposts at a fork in the road. And if somebody was trying to find you, which one would lead them to you or away from you the fastest, even if it's by one percentage point different, right? 
So for instance, if there's two answers on there and I go, you know what, if somebody was going to find me, that particular answer would, it would help them get to me just a few minutes faster. Go with that answer. Mm-hmm. Or I go, you know what, that one feels like it would lead somebody astray just a little bit quicker. That's not my answer. Mm-hmm. You're trying to find the one that finds you faster in that moment or leads you away less quickly, right? So whichever one gets to you more effectively. So when you <laughs> when you're at this point that you have the option for uh, trying to understand this in terms of real time, why I tell all the other teachers and Enneagram experts that I work with is we have to understand that from a neuroplasticity standpoint, from a brain standpoint, the brain can change dramatically in real time, right? Imagine if you've ever been profoundly triggered and you dysregulate it, right? Or you get activated. The Hulk, the Hulk and Bruce Banner are the same person. They're just different in context, right? So all of us have that capacity to Hulk out in different ways. But also one of the clear examples that I give people where they go, well, personality and type doesn't change, go based on who you were in your 20s. I go, one, your brain isn't fully developed from a hardware standpoint until your late 20s, early 30s. So it's not a good idea to do an understanding of who you were based on an immature brain. That's one, that's one pitfall. Two, I work with a lot of patients that have had brain injury. And when you have a brain injury, the field of neuropsychology was started off of somebody who had massive personality changes following a head injury. His name is Phineas Gage. He had an iron rod go through his head and he became a completely different person. And why I mention that is if we understand that the brain can change from trauma, then we start to understand that the brain and the personality can change from physical, mental, emotional, sexual, relational, or spiritual trauma. So if you have significant trauma in your life, what are called limbic attachments, which can be negative limbic attachments, or you have significant what's called positive states. So a limbic attachment is either a trauma and a negative experience, or it's a positive state. Think of the movie Ratatouille and what happened for the food critic when he took the bite of food at the end of the movie. He took one bite of food and remembered what it felt like physically to be loved, right? That's powerful. Mm-hmm. So when we're in a situation where you go, my brain can completely rewire based on the profoundly positive or profoundly negative experience that I have. And I don't do that in real time based on everything in my life that has informed me up to that point. I run the risk of not having as clear a snapshot or a picture in real time, taking into consideration both every good and every bad thing that has ever happened to me. That gives the whole spectrum. So I think that's just a couple of different ways to look at it. But like I'm saying right now is sometimes it can be really helpful if this feels overwhelming, then you go, maybe I need somebody to work with me through that. I don't like working out on my own. Maybe a personal trainer or a coach would be helpful. Or you hear this and you're like, I just got enough information for the next five years of workouts and I'm a solo workout person. I don't have workout partners. I do this on my own. Cool. This just gave you a lot of stuff that you can work out on your own, but figuring out Does it feel like you are the type of person who does it by yourself with others or with a professional, Uh, depending on what your experience was with what I just communicated, that'll give you some insights as to kind of the way that you approach that as well. Yeah, right. And even just again, in present context, you know, because I know there are different stages in life where it's, you know, I've worked with various professionals for a chapter, you know, where it's like, okay, you helped me up to a certain point and then you know, I was either ready to do things on my own or it came to a point where it's like, okay, like this is, we used your expertise and that was helpful and now it's time to move on. Yeah, Um, it's it's skill building and stamina building. You know, if we look at all of this like physical exercise, if I'm not physically exercising on a regular basis, I may need somebody to support me in that. Mm 
-hmm. Or if I'm physically exercising and I'm doing it for weight loss or I'm doing it for performance enhancement as an athlete, the goals and the strategies are completely different. Mm -hmm. So understanding what your relationship with exercise is Mm -hmm. in the first place, mentally, emotionally, physically, relationally, and spiritually, will then get you to go, well, what type of effort am I trying to put in here? What kind of growth or resistance training am I trying to do? Because for some of us, I can tell you, well, not for some of us, for all of us, I can tell you for sure, that whatever your top numbers are, that is 100% about resistance training and finesse. We already have a ton of power. We already have a ton of strength. And in fact, our highest numbers will run roughshod over ourselves because we're on autopilot. So resistance training is, is important in whatever your highest numbers are. Strength and conditioning is what we're doing in our lowest numbers because they fatigue us quickly, right? I have a lot of stamina in my primary type. That's my pilot. I can do that in my sleep. In fact, I do it in my sleep. I wake up in the middle of the night and I have to slow it down. So exercising restraint and what our default strategies are is actually a helpful economy. It's a good thing. And then developing some stamina and some strength in our lowest numbers. But if we don't know how to answer that, then there are things like diagnostics. There are things like Enneagram coaches. There are things like resources for what I've done. There's plenty of ways to do it. And and I think we can access that in, in a variety of ways. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about why why those low numbers are important and why people might want stamina there because there's also you know the the school of thought that says you know like let's look let's do a strengths based you know mm-hmm. work up and focus on what you're already good at don't worry about you know those other things totally. and you know totally. so why are those lower numbers important yeah coming back to the to the airplane analogy i don't want my lowest number flying the plane I also don't want that lowest number running and wreaking havoc during the flight, okay? I mean, we've seen this happen a lot over the last two years, but see what's happened when a plane has to get a plane has to get grounded because of a passenger, mm. right? That's a that's a really, really significantly complicated thing. So your lowest first time, I mean, your lowest priority, lowest hierarchical number can absolutely bring the plane down, right? Mm. Because your passenger, what happens if you have a first-time passenger that doesn't want to travel with the rest of your system? And now you've got something internally that's going, if you understand internal family systems, archetypes, family theory, all these other pieces, you're like, why do I keep having a panic attack every time that I get around somebody who raises their voice? Mm. And I've been doing a decade of work on my type and a decade of work on myself. But when that tone comes in and that volume comes in, my entire body goes through the roof and I have a panic attack. Mm. Well, it might be that you're allergic to aid energy. It might be that you're allergic to physical body-based assertiveness. And because you don't have any stamina, not through any faults of your own, but either because it wasn't modeled for you or you haven't been able to exercise it in safe and appropriate ways, your body keeps avoiding it to keep you safe. And then all of a sudden you drop into a conversation with a board member, a team member, or a family member, or yourself, And everything hits the fan because you feel like that person who's never flown before or every time they fly, they think they're going to die and they're not, but that doesn't make it any less relevant, right? Mm -hmm. So knowing your highest numbers helps you to more effectively fly the plane. Knowing your lowest numbers helps you to have a more effective experience where that person who doesn't often get into those experiences of being in that travel or transit or whatever the analogy may be, 
that helping your passengers, especially your first time passengers, or your infrequent flyers, not your frequent flyers, to have a healthy and a safe encounter with that experience is also profoundly important. And oftentimes we don't know it because we're living our lives bare, we're living our lives locked in the cockpit, right? Mm. We're doing all of the work on the pilots, but we're not taking into consideration that somebody's trying to open one of the doors or set the plane on fire, right? And that, that can be very helpful to maybe check in with everybody that's on board, you know? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it sounds like those low numbers correspond. I mean, in some of these other modalities, we might call them trauma triggers. We might call it might be the shadow work that you need to do. There might be the firefighters and IFS or just different people that will come up and you're like, oh, <laughs> like uh, I need to pay attention right now because, yeah, whatever yeah. happened, panic or some other kind of totally. um, flooding. Absolutely. And think of it because there's one there's a couple of different situations, right? Again, again with flying, um, what happens if one of those lower numbers hits the call button and nobody notices? right? That's your heart rate going up. That's you starting to sweat. That's your digestion changing. That's you dealing with more depression or fatigue than you normally do. That's your body hitting the call button. Something doesn't feel right. Will you respond and check in with me? What is an embodiment-based practice to help that thing settle down? I don't even know that it exists because I've never been able to identify my triggers. Mm. Somebody hits the call button, but then every once in a while, something in life is going to happen where maybe trauma does happen, something catastrophic does happen. You lose a family member or a baby or a job or hope, right? Yeah. And then you got to look at it and go, the, the something just blew it, an engine blew, right? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, where the door came off and people are flying out of the plane and it's something catastrophic. That's not a cockpit-based conversation. That's something that happens to your life, right? Mm-hmm. And then another analogy or another example is what happens if all of a sudden one of your passengers gets forced into the cockpit and the cockpit and is asked to fly the plane. Mm-hmm. You know what's going to happen? A lot of turbulence, a lot. So when we talk about triggers and we talk about being activated, that's a turbulent experience. I'm asking what are all of the things that could create turbulence, right? For me, if you take my lowest numbers and put them into the cockpit, I won't be able to land the plane without killing everybody. But could I keep us in the air long enough for somebody more effective to get back into the cockpit? Yes, that mm-hmm. I can do. But recognizing sometimes your lowest numbers have to have an opportunity to even view the cockpit as a potential space for them to be in. Mm. But then, and you know, if I'm a passenger and I want to be a pilot, there's going to be a hell of a lot of work to get there, right? And that's actually possible. Like, what does it look like to reorient to the patient that was in my office yesterday who had a brain tumor removed nine years ago, came out of the tumor for what was supposed to be a pretty standard procedure, and he came out of the surgery as a quadriplegic. And he spent the last nine years trying to get function in his body back, Mm. right? If I just start the conversation with him going, you're never going to walk again, then his idea of pursuing walking is already set. Mm. But when he's in my office yesterday and it takes less than 15 minutes using a tilt table that's behind me to show his body how to get weight bearing because we had a good case history, we had a good exam, and we saw that he had enough muscle tone to actually do weight bearing, but it had to be done in a way that was transitional. Then we actually get him weight-bearing for the first time in two years because we did it with an incremental on-ramp. It's not that I'm telling him you can't walk. I'm saying if you try to walk immediately, you're going to fall. Mm-hmm. So what does it look like to transition and to build and to have a process and to have an on-ramp, right? 
So telling somebody that, no, I don't want your lowest number to fly the plane unless you want that. And then we're going to have to do some very, very intentional work. But right now, what is creating turbulence in your life, including maybe one of your pilots didn't remember to wake up when you had to land? It's great to be on autopilot for the majority of the flight, but at some point you're going to have to check in because you don't land the plane on autopilot. You don't take Mm -hmm. off on autopilot. Mm -hmm. So all all of those analogies come in with, at the end of the day, have I taken an inventory or was I even given permission to be aware that I have pilots, co-pilots, flight attendants, and passengers, and everybody's got baggage, right? So having that assessment, not that judgment, Mm. and that understanding, not that qualification, uh, starts to help with our self-awareness of how we move forward and taking care of all the parts, Mm -hmm. no matter what their hierarchical or hierarchy. Uh, maybe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I, I feel like that, um, lends itself so easily to that, just the idea of neuroplasticity, because we are capable of so much. I mean, a lot of things will take a lot of work if it doesn't come to you naturally. It wasn't your natural go-to, you know, number coping mechanism, whatever you want to call it, traits that you learned growing up. But, you know, I'm thinking of, of a friend who's like, well, I'm just not a teacher. I'm like, well, (laughs) I probably wasn't either. But then I spent like every summer in college, like teaching summer Bible school every single day, every like every summer for four or five years. And so I became much more comfortable speaking in front of people, you know, and it was something that that part got exercise in a safe environment because kids think you're all stars, (laughs) you know, and so then transitioning to adults, I'm like, oh, Mm -hmm. I actually can do this, you know, and, Uh, or like the assertiveness, I had no eight energy, you know, but then having to learn that both because of my own health falling apart and, you know, things that happened like while I was in the convent and just different things that I was like, oh my gosh, assertiveness is so important. (laughs) And so needing to learn that, have it modeled for me, try it out. Like, you know, and sometimes it is totally freaky when that kind of eight that had been way in the back of the plane came into the cockpit and was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. (laughs) Like, can we do this? But to see when you do that and you practice it enough, you know, the next time I have to have like a very difficult conversation, I'm like, okay, I've done this. It's not comfortable, but I can do this, you know, not a big deal. And you know, this is a great thing with understanding things like polyvagal therapy or all of Dan Siegel's work, right? This Mm -hmm. is what you just described as a functional way of changing our window of tolerance. It's like, how can we stay in the conversation for the curve to go up peak and then drop off if you hit the eject button before you get to the top of the curve mm-hmm. you're not going to know what your margin and your threshold is yes. but if you stay in it in a safe and manageable way that's not traumatic and it's not traumatizing mm-hmm. then you can build a more robust window of tolerance and if people are like well how do i change my window of tolerance one read everything by dan siegel yes. okay um read everything by hillary mcbride um, Dr. Helen McBride, Dr. Dan Siegel. Um, but the other thing is understanding that our, our stamina is built on intensity, frequency, and duration, mm. right? Or our, the severity of what we encounter is also based on intensity, frequency, and duration. And what I mean by that is how strong was the experience? How often does it happen? And how long does it last, mm-hmm. right? If I leave for eight is one of my lowest two numbers, so I can appreciate that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not an aggressive or an assertive person, but I've had to learn to assert myself more, especially when I have a patient who's in the room who needs me to be that energy because they're so fearful of what the next year looks like. 
when I have somebody's in the office who's suicidal because they've tried for 20 years to get better, it's not a good time to be a passive energy, yeah. right? I need, somebody needs to take control. And that's what eight energy is good at, mm-hmm. sometimes overly so, right? Mm-hmm. But if I know that, hey, my eight energy is showing up for this conversation, and how many of these conversations am I going to have this week? Oh, I have four new patient exams this week. Oh, that's a lot of eight energy for me. I might, I might, that might be too much. Maybe I start moving forward my next year in practice and I do two new patient exams per week because my new patient exams take three hours, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So maybe 12 hours in a week is a little too much for my system. Or I go, you know what? This is life-giving. This is actually not as scary as I thought. So how strong is it? How often am I doing it for? And how long does it last? If it's a positive encounter, it's going to build stamina. If it's a negative encounter, it's going to be your gauge on how what the what the degree of severity is that you experience with that negative encounter. Yes, um, yes. So both of them work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Um, back when I was in corporate, I did a lot of executive coaching, and that was something that I love to do with people is just do some energy mapping throughout the day, you know, and to figure out like, okay, what what sucks your energy? What is life giving? how does your like circadian rhythms and, you know, metabolism and all of those things go so that, you know, when you need to, you know, I mean, trying to do your creative work, like after lunch, like probably not a good idea for most people, but it's so helpful. Just those embodiment tools that we have to be able to see like, what makes me a more effective and just flourishing human being? How do I become whole? And how do I live in a way that is in accord with, the the hardware the biology that i've been given yeah and i think you know one of the final points that i make for you that you just tied in that i think it's really important is uh, one of the statements in the book that i wrote is it's it's not about being less broken it's about becoming more whole right like we're, we're pursuing something it's journey over destination right but also it's realistically going what is what is a pragmatic and sustainable amount of growth and realistically, it's three to 5% week over week, month over month, year over year. If we look at the stock market or we look at raises in a corporate job, three to 5% growth year over year is really good. I mean, if you do 5% growth every year in your stocks and what you invest in, or you get 5% raise every year at the job that you've been working at, you're talking about a 50% increase within seven years. It's huge, right? I mean, compound interest comes in. Uh, and I'm sure somebody who's very high in five has a much better understanding of what the math is on all that. That's not my thing. But if you look at it as incremental growth that also provides compound interest, then it isn't about doing 50% better by the end of next year. In fact, your brain, I, I will tell you wholesale, there's very few things that I adamantly oppose because it's not my energy. But the idea of 21 days to a better anything is a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. Most of the people who win the lottery are bankrupt within two years. Most people who get gastric bypass surgery, 85%, put on the same weight and then 10% more within 18 months of the surgery. If you make too drastic of a change too quickly, your body does not have time to adapt and acclimate and it will reject it. Mm. This is why organ transplants are so difficult. Okay. Mm -hmm. You don't drop an organ in there and assume everything's going to be okay. Your body will fight the absolute hell out of that organ. Mm -hmm. So if we make a change too drastically, too quickly, our own bodies will resist it because it's so counter instinctive Mm -hmm. to the baseline process that our bodies have been using our entire lives, right? So in that situation, 
three to five percent growth is not only manageable, it is sustainable. And then you may have years where you get 15 or you may have 20. But if somebody has been married for 18 years and been a patient for 21 years, if somebody had told me that I need to focus on 5% growth year over year, and they had told me that when I was 20 or 30, my life would be drastically different. Mm. But I only learned that in my 30s. I didn't learn it in my teens or my 20s. Mm. That 3 to 5% growth is profoundly effective as an investment strategy. So mm. if I'm investing in myself, I can be okay with 5% growth and I can pursue more. But just understand the faster you grow, you better have a very firm foundation or else everything that you're building on top of it will collapse. That's what happens. Mm-hmm. We see it all the time. Mm-hmm. So healthy and appropriate growth is key. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think my my favorite thing about this whole conversation is just how these various tools are so effective at um, leading us towards wholeness in such an affirming way that it dissolves shame. You know, it's something that you recognize this is how I'm built. This is how my body was designed, my nervous system, um, my basic framework. Like God created me in a certain way that I'm going to, you know, form coping mechanisms and personality traits based on what life has given me. And that's normal and good. And now we just need to learn to work with, you know, whoever's on the plane with us. Absolutely. Everything makes sense. It's just whether or not we want to sustain it. And those are two different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. This has been such a juicy conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Jerome. Um, oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Kelly. It's been a gift. Yeah. If people want to learn more about you and your work, where should they go? The easiest way is my website is just drjerome.com. D-R-J-E-R-O-N-E.com. Wonderful. Well, I highly encourage you, anybody who's listening, to check out his book, The Brain-Based Enneagram. There's some good things in there. He also has um, a podcast on his website where he talks about a lot of Enneagram goodness. So go and check that out. Thank you so much, Kelly. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And thank everyone for listening.